The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we are on, if, you're, if you want to follow along with the whole thing, um, we're on page 42 of the Catechism. We'll kind of do a little bit of a review before moving on. Um, but the Creed has been talking about what it means that Jesus died. Um, you'll remember that the Creed says that he was crucified, died, and was buried, which... Uh, you know, as some people have pointed out, those three seem to be uh, uh, all talking about the same thing, just that he died. Uh, but in fact, they're not. They're actually talking about different things. He was crucified, and he didn't live through it. He died, right? And was buried. Okay, so there are actually, uh, you know, kind of speculative heresies in the ancient world, in the ancient church, that, that kind of say one of, one of each Thing might be wrong, right? So there's, there are kind of, and even today, there are people who have these theories, right? There's, there's the sort of swoon theory that instead of dying on the cross, Jesus just sort of passed out. Um, let, let, me, let, me, let me make this abundantly clear. Roman centurions do not bungle crucifixions, okay? Like, well, you know this. Do army personnel bungle anything in a well-ordered machine army? Okay, like short of the army you're in, there has never been a more efficient killing machine, right, than the Roman army. The Roman military did not mess things up. They made certain that he was dead. Um, how did they do it? Well, they went along, uh, uh, according to Scripture, they went along breaking the legs of those that they crucified that day. And when they got to Jesus' legs, they didn't bother breaking them because he was already dead. So what, did we, what do we read happened? In the, in the Gospel of John. They took a spear, they thrust into his side, and out all of his bodily fluids came. And we know that this is what happens because when, when people are crucified, you essentially die of uh, either exposure, and sometimes it took people several days to die crucified, um, or it's simply this, your lungs fill up with, with blood and water, and you essentially asphyxiate on your own bodily fluids. That's how it works. Um, so, so this crucified, died, and was buried um, all refer to the fact that he was truly dead. Okay? Um, and that's, that's an important thing, especially as some people say, well, maybe it wasn't that way. Or, or another great example of kind of these insane theories that people will put forward to, put, to just sort of say, well, that didn't really happen. That sounds unbelievable. Is things like when he, when he takes the vinegar from a sponge, he's actually taking some sort of psychedelic drug that just kind of allows him to make it, right, and, and without dying. Um, these, are, these, are, these are just like the most... The problem is that, that these theories are just sort of the height of incredulity, right? There's, there's, no, uh, there's no sense that maybe, maybe I should just sort of either accept it as a whole or reject it as a whole. Um, it's, I gotta sort of make it fit better into the way I see the world. Um, by saying that Jesus was buried, uh, uh, there's another thing being said, and that actually refers to the last question here, which we didn't deal with, but, but I, wanna, I wanna ask, um, First, question 67 on page 42. And by the way, we, we read, I read the question and everyone responds with the answer. Why does the creed emphasize Jesus' death in this way? 
The creed emphasizes Jesus' death to counter suspicions that Jesus did not truly die on the cross, to celebrate the fact that he died there to secure our salvation, and to prepare our minds to grasp the glory of his bodily resurrection. Okay, so there were a number of, of heresies in the ancient world. Um, one of them is, is docetism. Uh, so dokeo in Greek means appear. And it's the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He only appeared to die on the cross. Okay? Well, you ask me what's more miraculous, right? That someone died on a cross, which happened a lot in the ancient world, actually. Crucifixions were normal. I mean, this happened a lot. Um, they're actually normal today, statistically. It's, a, it's one of the kind of normal way that people are executed. Um, and, uh, you know, ISIS used this as a form of, of uh, execution and, and uh and murder when they were going, when ripping through Iraq. Um, so we know this. But it's sort of like saying, well, he only really appeared, right? It's sort of saying it was sort of, um, uh, it, was, it was special effects. It's really what Docetus believed. Um, there, were, there were other theories, uh, not only the kind of swoon theory, but, but things like, um, well, maybe he died and then, like, figured out a way to, like, not be dead, right? So it's sort of like what he experiences is a near-death experience, okay? Well, I know these things happen. They happen. Uh, but that's not what the, what the Scriptures describe. They don't describe a near-death experience. What do they describe? Death, yeah. So it's like death, like real death. Um, but look at these three. Uh, to counter the suspicions, because there are suspicions, right? Um, you know, we have, we have conspiracy theories abounding about death. Um, just last weekend, I met the doctor who ran an IV into JFK on the day of his assassination. Okay? And yet, and he said, no way. Like, we were putting an IV in a dead man. Like, that's it. Okay? And yet, there are what? Conspiracy theories, right? Maybe he didn't die. What if he's not dead, right? It's like, come on. Um, uh, you know, these just, these just sort of, it's, it again is the, the level of incredulity that, that's there. And why would you expect a level of incredulity? Oh yeah, there, look, there, there is more comfort in thinking that the world is just full of nefarious people who pull off hoaxes than thinking that the world is just what you see in front of you, right? That it is as it is. Um, and Christians actually maintain this pretty substantially through all of Christian history. It's like, look, the world is exactly as you see it. And there's a whole part of the world that you don't see. Right? But the world is exactly as you see it, and it is, and it is true. Um, so, you know, and, and these things rear their ugly heads all over the time. I mean, I was driving down 35 yesterday and, and saw, you know, one of those lighted billboards, you know, and I, I don't want to have an argument about vaccines, but this thing just said, vaccines kill, right? And you're like, really? Like, I'll just say, that sounds like an unsubstantiated claim. Um, and, and, but, but still, people are more willing to believe what they just simply can't believe or don't want to believe than what's true. Um, so you have to be really careful about that. Um, 
But look at this, it's to celebrate the fact that he died there to secure our salvation. So in saying that he died in the creed, we actually are celebrating this death and to prepare our minds to grasp the glory of his bodily resurrection. Um, there, there, it's tr certainly the case that you cannot have a meaningful resurrection apart from a true death. Okay, so here's one of the things that a lot of people will do, even, especially today. They'll say, well, you know, maybe, maybe the resurrection was just kind of a, like, a, like a really comforting myth. Just because the death would be too much to take alone. Um, on the other end, there's the, well, let, let's just say the death wasn't as bad as it might have been, or maybe it wasn't really death, or maybe it was like just kind of death in a kind of uh, esoteric way and not a bodily way. What would that mean about the resurrection? See, people are not actually, we actually have a surprising amount of uh, clarity in our culture about what death is. We also have a surprising amount of lack of clarity. But ancient people were not all of one mind as to what death meant, right? It didn't simply mean physical death. It meant that you die and you go to the underworld. Um, and Jews and Greeks believe the same thing about this, essentially. Um, Sheol is the place of the, of the dead. Greeks have a place of the dead. Uh, it's you go, you're buried. You go under the ground. Where is that? Underground, right? And, and where, where, what is that? Well, it's where all the dead people are, right? It's, it's not, not a, it's not, it doesn't have to be more than that. But the, the creed emphasizes this, this crucifixion, the death, and burial all in one sentence because they all uh, co-inhere and they're all necessary to one another. Okay. What does the creed say mean by saying that Jesus descended to the dead? That Jesus descended to the dead means that he truly died and entered the place of the departed. Okay, so this is a, a, a content. This is there's there's some contention about this um, still today. Um, there are some who will say, oh, you know, because sometimes this is translated as not he descended among the dead, but he descended into hell. Okay, which is a there's some translation issues here, but, but the main part would be simply to say that, um, that he enters into death in the, in the biggest way you could imagine, right? Um, and the scriptures are actually quite clear on this, that he actually goes among the dead. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes this is really hard for people to imagine because, you know, I grew up in a kind of, you know, nominally Christian home uh, where people didn't really know much and they, they just didn't know about what Christians actually teach. And so it was like, well, when you die, you go to heaven to be with Jesus in a sort of disembodied existence. Um, what about my body? Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. It's all gone. It just sort of disappears, whatever. Um, and, and as I started to really become a catechized Christian, I started to say, that does, that's not true, right? Christians actually believe that your body descends into the earth, right? You know. And look, if you're buried as a whole body, yeah, that's what happens. That's where your body is, okay? If you're cremated, whatever. I mean, your body is in the earth, okay? Um, what happens to your soul? Any, open to anybody's guess, but, but it's this idea that um, you go where the dead are, okay? Just a really simple kind of way to look at it. Jews believe that you uh, descend among the dead to the place of the dead. Um, going to the underworld is not a, not a great place to be. It's sort of a shadowy place, kind of a uh, very hopeless place. Um, because not many people uh, 
go into the underworld, survive it, and come back out. Um, so here's, here's, here's just a kind of a place to hang your hat on it, is that um, what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that, here, let me just read it to you. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Uh, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but, be, but alive, but made alive in the Spirit. So there's this question of like, what does alive in the Spirit mean? And where does that Spirit go? And this is kind of the, the contentious part about this verse. In which he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during which the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were saved through water. And then he goes on this kind of tear about baptism. But, but the point is this, that, that Christ truly died, okay? again, truly died in the way that human beings die. And the way that I would put it to you is this, just for now, because we're going to move on to the resurrection of the dead and it'll all start to make sense, um, is that uh, death is not just your heart stopping or brain waves stopping. It's more than that. Um, death, death means uh, being, uh, having that, uh, the spiritual part of us separated from our body in a very real way. Um, is this bad? Yes, it's bad. Death is emphatically bad. Okay? Uh, however... Um, death is not final. So most people today speak of death as just final. I'll be gone, right? Passed away, whatever that means. Look, if I could just like all my possessions to never hear, have to hear that phrase ever again. I don't use it. And the reason I don't use it is that it, it sends the wrong message about death. Like I get the desire to use a euphemism about death that's a little easier to take than dead, right? Um, but at the same time, why can't we just use the word dead? Dead is a good word, right? Um, he's dead. Um, but passed away kind of gives this connotation as like, well, they're just not real anymore. Well, we Christians don't believe that. We believe that the dead are just as real as we are. They're just in a different state of their existence. Okay? But we'll, we'll talk about that, how that goes. Um, I will just tell you what I believe. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just lay out what I believe, and this is, this is not like... I try to tell you when, I, when I'm like not in the mainstream of Anglicanism, uh, but, but I'm kind of on one side of it, and I'm in the super high church part. I actually think that Jesus descended among the dead to proclaim his gospel and his triumph over death to the dead, especially those, those spirits who were formerly in prison because they did not obey in the days of Noah. Okay? So we're talking about people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons uh, and, and daughters, you know, like all those kind of people who would be awaiting among the dead this Savior that was promised to them as well. Adam, Eve, all the rest, right? Um, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. I do not believe that the, only, that the only human beings saved are those who come after Christ. Um, I think that that kind of covenant faithfulness is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? So please hear me when I say that. Uh, now, who are those people? Lord only knows. <laughs> All I'm saying is that God made promises to them too and fulfills them okay, in Christ. All right. We really have to have this understanding. Otherwise, we, we've wind up in the real problem of um, supersessionism, okay, which I will just tell you is not just an anti-Semitic uh, thought, supersessionism. 
Note, it obliterates the Old Testament as meaningful. It says the Old Testament is of no help at all. Um, it is merely fulfilled in the new. Um, well, hold up, right? The scriptures are one. So supersessionism has a problem in that it basically says the, the Old Testament gets overturned by the new. I don't, say, I don't think so, right? Um, and, and Jesus doesn't think so, right? I came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, right? So you have to be really careful about this. And, and I would just say that, um, that there's something rather beautiful about this descent among the dead in that sense. On Holy Saturday at Christ Church, we read this ancient homily uh, that is really quite beautiful. It's, it's of Jesus uh, descending among the dead, bearing his victorious weapon, the cross, okay? Who knows what that is, but, but it's just like amazing. And then he, he just, he, he reaches out his hand to Adam, right? Uh, icons of the resurrection are him standing upon the doors of the gate of death, crossed over each other in an X shape, cross, okay? He's standing on them and he's offering one hand to Adam, another hand to Eve, and he's drawing them up out of hell. So this is standard mainstream fare for Christians, right? Uh, now, some of you grew up in, in uh, Christian traditions that would reject this entirely, and I don't want to don't belittle that. I just want to say that I don't think it's biblical. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I'll just be blunt with you. Um, okay, you ready for, for the third day he rose again? Question 69, what does the creed mean when it, when it affirms that Jesus rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated. God restored him physically from death to life in his resurrected body, never to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Um, all right, so you ready? The resurrection. I will tell you this, that in a lot of forms of American Christianity, the resurrection is the least appreciated doctrine that you could possibly imagine. Okay, So just start there. Uh, I had a friend who... who uh, um, used to say, if I have to go to church on Easter Sunday and hear another sermon that's just about the cross and doesn't talk about the resurrection, I'm just going to shoot myself in the head because that would be better. And, he, and he's right, you know, because the cross without the resurrection is hopeless. The, the resurrection should be proclaimed on Easter solidly, right? Um, but, but let's talk about what that means. It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated, Okay. You know, because I was a part of the team that wrote the catechism, I like to tell you when I sort of insisted on something, and this was an, I insisted on this, like, we, we need to make it clear that the resurrection is not about resuscitation. It's not about breathing life or, uh, or putting a heartbeat in his heart again. Um, it's not as though the Holy Spirit sort of comes down into the tomb and uh, administers CPR or gives him the, uh, the shock treatment on his heart. That is not what the scriptures are describing. Okay. How do we know that's not what the Scriptures are describing? Because they do not teach that he's restored to a bodily life like we have. Okay. It is a bodily life, but it is a bodily life after a different um, order. I'll put it that way. Okay. We'll talk more about what that means. God restored him physically from death to life in his resurrected body, never to die again. So here's the, the teaching of Paul, which is uh, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Okay. Um, well, why? Because the death, he, he died in the body, he died once. How many times can you die? Oh, no, one. One time, that's it. Like, why? 
Why do we get one death? I mean, quite apart from what is said in the James Bond movies, you only die twice, which by the way is the best one of all. It's got the best like, you know, jokes. It was written by Roald Dahl. Anyway, I'm a, I'm a geek about that. Uh, but once, why once? Yeah, it's the human condition to die once. You, like, once is it. Um, we're going to say more about this. His tomb was empty, okay? Thanks be to God. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead, and the risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Okay, let's move on. Um, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was seen by as many as 500 people at one time. Okay, so let's just do a little bit of apologetic time here. So there are theories, right? Some, part of the theories is that, like, after the crucifixion, the disciples were so forlorn that they went out and found psychotic mushrooms and sort of started doing mushrooms. And so they all hallucinated the resurrection together, which sounds really like, oh, well, that's a perfectly good explanation, isn't it? No, it's not. You know why? Yeah, you're very smart. Yeah, it's like people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. They have different, like they all come away with different things, right? Um, it's the singularity of the event that matters. Yes, that's right. Um, they they witness the same Jesus. Um, and, and this is what the New Testament proclaims like without skipping a beat. It's like, yeah, we were all there. This happened. We touched him. We like hung out with him. We ate with him on a beachside. Like we were there with him. So that's important. But let's ask question 70 before I could I say a little bit more. What kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars, and ate with them. Okay, so what kind of things happen after his resurrection that are kind of surprising, that seem strange? What is that? He... Yeah, he makes fish tacos by the beach on a charcoal fire. Okay, that's fun. So he can eat, right? Does he have to? Presumably not, right? Why? Because he's not going to die again, right? So, like, he's not going to say, I'm dying of hunger, because he's, that's not true, right? What else? What's that? Yeah, so, right, he's carrying wounds that were inflicted on him in his bodily life, right, which are now sort of, the sense you get is they're not as bad as they once were, but they're still there, which means something, right? What does it mean? There's, there's continuity between his crucified body and risen body. In fact, they're the same body. This, this body has been, um, has been um, um, well, I don't even know that we have an English word that works. Transform doesn't quite capture it, right? because that would mean that there are two forms. There aren't two forms, there's one form. It's actually something much more like the, the Greek word anakinosis. He's been um, sort of restored to a higher state of being. Cool? Okay, so that's fun. What, what can he do? He can appear through locked doors, that's cool. He can appear and disappear, yeah. And yet, it's still bodily, right? Whoa. Not only this, but the New Testament, like, okay. 
He not only appears and disappears, but he appears in places that are so far apart on the map that they can't be traversed in a day. Okay, so road to Emmaus, Jerusalem, Galilee. I mean, it's just all over the place. How? Because he's just not bound in time and space like we are. Okay, we live a linear existence a long time. Um, but there's something that actually changes in that relationship that the risen body of Jesus has with time. And it's to the extent that, and this might shock you, that some of the church fathers actually state that, that for Jesus to be crucified, died, and risen means that, um, that, in a sense, we can say that Jesus has always lived in a resurrected body, always. Now, I know this is a little bit scandalous, but when you think about it, just, just consider it. The timeline gets obliterated, right? Because there's this sort of eschatological idea that just sort of applies to all of human life, all of, all of history. So the fathers are like, yeah, so the risen Christ appears to all kinds of people. Big deal. Like, he can do whatever he wants. He's no longer limited in time and space. Okay? This actually paves the way for Eucharistic theology as well, right? How is it that Jesus can appear in multiple places at once? How can he be in one place and another place and be bodily in one place? And, you know, how does this work? How can he be made known in the breaking of bread? This is a great example of this. His body's not, it's, it's transformed to a higher state, okay? All right, so this is really important, and, it, and it's important for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that uh, there have been people in the last century who say, well, it's just so clear from Scripture that his existence after his resurrection is not bodily. Okay, well, only if you assume that a body, that the body he has after his resurrection is just like ours, limited in time and space. Otherwise, no. Like, here's the other, here's the other wild thing. The New Testament not only makes the claim that he rose from the dead in this tra you know, transformed, renewed to a higher state body, but that what will happen to us because of this is now like a principle in all creation and a principle in human life. Same thing's going to happen to us. Okay, so that's what we have to look forward to in this risen body. Um, and, and that will come later in the catechism. All right, so we good so far? All right. Super fun. I mean, I, I love this because it's like, you know, everything you thought you know about Christianity, you know, for a lot of people in catechesis, it's like, I'll just tell you this, like, for a lot of people in catechesis, it's been, oh no, my entire theological world has just been like rocked. Like, and it's scary. So I'm just going to, let's just, let's just say that up front. Like, it can be scary because you feel like everything's being reorganized. Um, everything you thought you knew is, is no longer really working. Um, so I just want to kind of say I'm here to kind of help you through that. Uh, one of the great definitions of a catechist is a conversion therapist. So sometimes it's just kind of like help you come to terms with the fact that like what you used to believe is not what you believe anymore and that's okay and maybe God's calling you to something deeper or more full or whatever it is. I'm happy to do that, right? Um, I think, I'll just put it this way, one of the things that's happening today in kind of um, evangelical deconstruction is a deconstruction from a faith that's not even recognizably Christian. So how can you deconstruct what wasn't really there and be left with anything more than what you had before you can't? So I think, you know, in working with a lot of students in particular who've been in this place, it's like, look, you know, whatever you thought you had is probably not authentic Christianity, right? Now, parts of it are, for sure. But, but let's, let's make all this clear. And a lot of it centers on these exact subjects, right? What does the crucifixion mean? What is the teaching on the resurrection? And next, what's the teaching on the ascension? Because the ascension gets super crazy. 
So, are you ready? All right, this is fun. He ascended into heaven. How should you understand Jesus' ascension into heaven? Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. There he intercedes for and receives into heavenly life all who come to him in faith. Though absent in the body, Jesus is always with me by his Spirit and hears me when I pray. Okay. So the teaching of the church is that on the 40th day following his resurrection, um, he goes up on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the temple. Okay. This is really important. Do you know why it's important? Okay. Geographically, uh, the, the really like the highest point that is east of the temple is the Mount of Olives before you hit the, the, the Jordanian lowlands, basically, like the Dead Sea, essentially. All right, have you, has anybody been? Okay, if, if you go to the Holy Land, you'll see this. It's like, it's one of the most amazing things. You look at it, and it's like, oh my goodness, that makes sense. Um, but the idea in, in and among, especially the Pharisees, but, but Judaism really holds this, is that, um, that the, the Messiah will come from the east, okay? But who will he appear to first? Zion, right? The, the, the mountain of the Lord is where the Messiah will come. Okay, so, so uh, this is one of, the, one of the really main facets of Zionism in the last century and still today is we need to get to Jerusalem because we need to welcome the Messiah back when he comes. That's where this is going to happen. Okay, cool. Uh, maybe you grew up as some sort of a Pentecostal or you know, whatever it might be, and you're like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Like, we need to equip the Jews with Apache helicopters and like get it done. You know, it's like, okay, we, we get it. Like, <laughs> but, but. In actual practice, this has meant that, that uh, very pious Jews will spend their whole life saving to have their tomb placed on the Mount of Olives and everything that goes down into the Kidron Valley. So what's there today? It's just, it's a graveyard. That's all it is because people are saying, in the resurrection of the body, I'll meet the Messiah. Well, guess what? They're right about that. They're really right. That's what's going to happen. Um, and so it's this, I look forward to the coming of the Messiah from the east, and I want to be the first one there, okay? But here's the twist in Christian teaching, is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes, he's crucified, he rises from the dead, he's buried, or he rises from the dead, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, okay? There's a twist. But what, what's said in Acts, in Acts chapter 1? Basically, why do you stand around looking for him? You know, he's going to come in the same way that he left, right? It's this understanding that he goes before us to prepare a place for us, and when he comes, he will come in the same way that he, that he went. Okay. So, this is the understanding that Jesus taken up out of human sight, returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with his Father before his incarnation. So, this is to say that what has changed, in a sense, I don't want to say change big time, but what's changed in the sort of economic life of the Trinity, let's put it that way in big theological words, is that you now have a human being who's been taken up into God. What? Like, <laughs> that, that's what it is. Okay, that's what the ascension teaches, is that uh, at the right hand of the Father is a, is, a, is a human being, but not just any human being, but what? A person who is both human and divine, a divine person. There you have it. That's, that's where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of the Father. All right. 
is he only there is a good question. Remember, what body is he taken up into heaven with? The resurrected body, right? So can he be many places at once? Sure. Like, and not only that, but 10 days later, the Holy Spirit is sent among, among the disciples. Okay, so you have this presence, continued presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. All right. What is it that Jesus does at the right hand of the Father? Well, he intercedes. Okay. Now, this is really the wild part is because he is the high priest. What, is, what does a high priest really do? Well, let's just go back. What does a priest do? Yeah. Yeah, a priest is like, you know, not... I don't want to come across as a union, but it's kind of an archetypal uh, service that is that is uh, of representing God to the people and the people to God. It's an intermediary, essentially. Um, a go-between. So when we think about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he is an intercessor. He intercedes for us. Okay? He also... He also stands as the, the perfect priest, God and man at once, at the right hand of the Father. Um, making, and I will, I will make it even more clear, I think that what part of the thing that's happening um, is that Christ is making a sacrifice of himself before the Father that is perpetual. Okay. The, the intercession is more than just like, oh, I pray for Doug today, you know, Lord. Like, <laughs> it's much more than that. It's that he's actually a continual outpouring of himself before the Father constantly. Okay. Um, and it's not just, in his, not just in his divine nature, but in the whole of his person. Okay. So that's fun. Um, now, let me just kind of take a step back. What does that mean for our future? Okay. When you think about what heaven is, Try to get away from the childish images of harps and clouds, etc. You know, glass-bottom boats, essentially, in there that fly. Okay. What? It's just look. The life of the the life of the redeemed church is the life of Jesus. Okay, because think about it. The language of covenant in the Old Testament is that uh, everything that I have will be yours, and everything that you have will be mine. What do we actually have? You're born naked. You will die with nothing. Like, as a friend of mine says, you know, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Okay. Um, we're, we're naked before God. We're alone without Him. So it's this: you, 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 to be made in the image of God, as as my friend Jim Packer would say, means you're made to be like Jesus. And it's actually in His ascended life that you were made to be like Jesus, okay? It, it's not just a reference to you were made to like be, be really meek and kind like Jesus, although that's true, right? Or, or treat children like Jesus, that's true, right? Or uh, speak like Jesus, see the world like Jesus, be compassionate to sinners like Jesus. No, it's, it goes beyond that, which is that you were made for a life of, of total intimacy before the Father, total sharing in the divine life, okay? Got it? Okay, so that's the ascension. The ascension is completely overlooked by most Christians today, and it's really too bad because there's so much there. Um, this intercession is really powerful. Um, so, so that's a big key. All right. What resulted from the ascension? 
Jesus ascended into heaven so that through him his Father might send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Christians together are united to Christ, the living head of his body, the church. Okay. So this is kind of the next part of this teaching, which is that the reason that Jesus gives for his going to the Father is what in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of John? He's got a reason to go, that he wants to send, right, the Holy Spirit. All right. So this has been really overlooked in Western theology, but it has not been overlooked in Eastern theology because they hold that the whole of Easter actually um, tells the gospel, right, which is not just that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and rose again, but that he was crucified, died, rose again, ascended the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. So when we get into the spring, you're going to see this. Like, it's not just Good Friday, Easter, okay, that was fun, we're done. It's keep going because ascensions comes and then like the day of Pentecost comes. And it's all about this fulfillment of that thing, which is, which is the sending of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what is, what is it that the sending of the Holy Spirit does? Well, it's through the Holy Spirit that Christians together are united to Christ, the living head of his body, the church. Okay, the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, speaking from the perspective of the New Testament, is the guarantee of our inheritance. Okay. Well, what's a, what's a guarantee of an inheritance? Have you ever gotten an inheritance? Okay. okay, good, good. At least there's one person here who's gotten an inheritance. It's very rare these days, but I received an inheritance once, and it changed my life, I'll just tell you. It changed my life. Like, I can't even imagine what my life would have been like without it. Like, it really did change my life. It changed my whole, all, me and my cousins, we all have a different life now because of that gift. My grandmother was a school teacher. Uh, she, she died with, you know, all of her retirement savings, which she had just sort of squirreled away you know, by, by eating literally most days like broccoli and breakfast with her friends at a little diner in town. But that was her life. And she, she scrimped and saved her whole life. Um, but it changed our family tree. Okay. There was a guarantee of that inheritance because she would always like at, at things she would kind of corner us and say, you know, someday, like, you know, like your life's not going to be like your parents' life where you scrimp and save and do all this stuff. Like it's going to be different. And she was right, man. Totally different. What's that? You had to fight for Ryan. Oh no. Yeah. Well, that happens too, right? Where there is no guarantee. Yeah. So, so. You need to know this: that if you die without a will, you are making your inherit. You're making your um, your your children's life miserable. Okay, you're being very mean to them. Like they will not remember you as the sweet old lady that you wanted to be remembered as. Okay, they will remember you as. Why did she do that? I had to deal with probate courts, right? And they are not nice people. Uh, they will make it difficult, and and then it leads to fighting in the in the family. Actually, what, what financial experts say you should do is you should sit down with your family every year and just sort of talk them through what your plan is. Tell them, here's where the will is. Here's how it works. Like, here's what I want. Okay? This is what responsible grown adults do. Okay? Um, now, I say all of this because that is a form of guarantee of an inheritance, is this, this communication of uh, the future. Okay? So, let me just, oh, this is good. Uh, I didn't even think it was going to go this direction, but the, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inherited future. That's actually how the work of the Holy Spirit works in the church eschatologically to draw us to our end in Christ. Okay? I'll, I'll just be as clear as I can about that. Um, and this is why um, Christians are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And we say, look, I'll just be clear. We're going to get into sacraments later, but I'm just going to say, um, you, God might give you his Holy Spirit in a myriad of ways. God can do whatever he wants. But the way that that classically has been spoken of happening is in the sacrament of baptism. And why is that? Right, it's, it's being joined to Christ in that way and then being joined into his life, which is you know, really important. But it's, it's bigger than that. It's just because Scripture says that, right? Um, what is it that Peter says when, when, uh, when the, those who hear his rather uh, radical sermon say, they say, they beat the rest, of, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, that, you know, that answers that question, right? So, so the church teaches that in, in baptism, you're granted the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will just really say you might have been granted the gift of the Holy Spirit beforehand. So what? Uh, <laughs> that's okay. That does happen. I'm sure it happens. Um, but, but we can say it definitely happens in baptism. Um, and, uh, and part of this, you know, illumines a lot of things like, you know, um, I think, I think we're having a major breakdown in, in, uh, in the church today because people have been sort of taught that the assurance of your salvation is not sacramental. It's just how you feel about your salvation. And we either clearly say that or we just imply it, right? So how are you feeling about, you know, like, you love Jesus? Like, you know, I'll just, I'll just freely say to you, there are some days when I am just angry. Like, I'm just mad because, like, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. And I feel really low. And I feel really, like, kind of, you know, I'll just tell you, I feel resentful. I feel angry. I feel like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what God's doing. Is that a sign that I'm not his child? God forbid that my own kids felt that way about me, right? Right? How do they know? How do they know? My wife and I are their parents. This is a really simple question. Because we saw them born. I literally saw all seven of my children leave my wife's body. Okay? That's how I know. I also know some other things, but, but I know that. Right? Okay? They were born of my wife and me. I know that. We tell them that. So no matter how much they hate me, no matter how much they like run away and do all those things, like I'm still their dad and my wife is still their mom. That's it. That, that, that can't change. That's, that's an ontological reality of who they are, okay? You can run away from it. You can test it. You can like throw it away, whatever, you know, but that's the reality, okay? Having said that, I do want to say that consolations are an awful good thing, aren't they, Right? It's really good to feel, to like have those good feelings. Like I love, I love the Lord. I'm really, you know, feeling very blessed and all that. That's very good, right? At the same time, you don't want to get presumptuous, do you? You don't want to sit there and say, "Well, you know, yes, I've done many terrible things, but and I'll probably keep doing them." But God still loves me. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Can we just move on, please? No, no. Uh, there has to be a manner of intention in us, for sure. We have to live that life out. Um, I can't just sort of say, well, I love mom and dad, and then, you know, be in constant rebellion. Um, there's a presumption about that. Oh, they'll forgive me. Right? Um, what, what, is, what is actually the way to go here? I'm just going to tell you. It's to trust the promises of God as contained in Holy Scripture. Okay? It's really simple. You, you, you do the things that you're commanded to do, right? If you love me, Jesus says, you will do what? 
obey my commandments. Okay, so I just want you to hear that, 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 that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not sort of meant to be a kind of like guarantee in the sense of like, oh, I have all this assurance and isn't that great? It's like, well, there are times when you might not feel that and that's okay. Um, what do we have to do? We have to press on, you know? Uh, that's really important because sometimes the Christian life is really hard and really awful. And sometimes you go years without feeling consolation. And you know what? That's okay. You can do it, right? I mean, it's like this. I've known many people through the years who say, I'm not really sure my mom loved me. Like, oh, that stinks. And yet, you know that, and yet she's my mother, okay? And even though I didn't feel it, I'm sure that she did in certain ways, right? In the ways that she could, okay? Um, yeah, Totally. Is it hard to be a child of a parent? Yes. Is it hard to be a parent? Yes. Like you know, all these things are the way that the way that these things are spoken of, um, and and these these are not just uh, kind of like nice little analogies to talk about salvation. They are the they are the ways in which the New Testament speaks to them. Adoption by grace. Um, is the Christian life all easy? No. It involves immense suffering, um, but but we should take heart in the midst of that because we are people who've been given hope. Hope in particularly what. Jesus. Okay. So I want you to hear that. Okay. Let's just uh, wrap up this section on the ascension and then we'll be done. We've got 10 minutes left. What resulted from the ascension? Jesus ascended in... Oh, no, we've already done this, haven't we? Okay. Well, let's just, let's just kind of put, put a final wrap on it. Um, I do want to say a bit about the Holy Spirit, although we'll say more later. Um, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of the life of God to His church. Okay, so I want to be really clear about that. I, I tend to think about the Holy Spirit um, in, in, in Augustinian terms, and Augustine uh, believed that uh, the Holy Spirit was the kind of sigh of love between the Father and the Son. A sort of, it's, it's a wordless kind of sigh. <sighs> you know, sometimes it's, oh. you know, it's that kind of like, it's, it's, it's the communication of, the Holy Spirit is the communication of their love. And a person, you know, a divine, a divine person, and since it's always been happening, it's always the case. Um, and this is turned outward towards the church in the ascension. Um, which means that, uh, that the church is an object of God's love and life. Okay? So here's another way to put it like this. The the way, that, the way that a lot of people think of the Holy Spirit is just sort of this uh, chaotic influence on the church, right? Like we, want, we want you to mess us up, Holy Spirit. Like, like what? Like, that's, not, that's not the reality, okay? Uh, the reality actually in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit actually brings order to the church, brings right order, order of our affections, order of our life, um, uh, um, brings uh, order to our worship even. Right? People have asked me, like, well, you know... I'm, I'm really interested in Christchurch, but man, it is super ordered. It's like, there's a reason for that. Because like, we actually think that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what is required for freedom? Right order. Right? Okay. Why do we, why do we talk of the United States as a, ostensibly, as a free society? What guarantees our freedom? Order. 
okay? We have laws that guarantee our freedom, okay? Why do we have that? Well, because we have laws, okay? In, in, a, in, a, in a monarchy, the only way that you can have freedom is when the monarch is squared away and is good because they're the law personally, okay? Um, but we're, we're a nation of laws and the rule of law guarantees freedom. Um, is it freedom to do whatever you want? Well, no, because laws are supposed to prevent that. Right? But this is just kind of an analogy for what, what's going on here, is that the, 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 what grants Christians freedom in the Holy Spirit is that we are free to do what is right and free to live an ordered life and free to, be, to, to live in the presence of God without, uh, without fighting each other tooth and nail and getting into these kind of squabbles and things. Um, I, I will just tell you, I actively resist the idea that, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is given to bring chaos to the church. Um, that cannot be. It's not true. It's just wrong. Um, uh, historically, um, it's been understood that the, that the life of the Holy Spirit is continually poured out upon the church in this sacramental way, which does what? Well, it gives us grace to live rightly, um, to live in justice towards one another. And justice is not just that everybody gets what we think they should get. It's that actually everybody's in right relation with everyone else. And this is what Paul talks about um, when he's speaking in 1 Corinthians about the, body, the life of the body and the life of the Holy Spirit, right? What does the Holy Spirit do? Builds us up for the common good, right? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Okay, so these are all interrelated ideas. Um, but I, I would just simply say that, that uh, you know, yes, Christians should have the thriving life of the Holy Spirit in them. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about. Okay? Um, but, but it is, uh, I would note, first, an eschatological reality that, that helps us to live the divine life in this life. Okay? Um, but it's also the sacramental reality of the church, that we are um, a temple of the Holy Spirit, both as ourselves right, and as the church. Um, so, just a thought. All right, we'll pick up next week with uh, what comes after the ascension. Seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? That's where we get to the, to, you know, how is it that Jesus is king over this world even now? So that's great fun. Okay, thank you.